When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to a very, very special philanthropy edition of Slate Money, your guide normally to the business and finance news of the week. We are going to have some newsworthy stuff from this week as well, but it's all going to be about philanthropy. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. Today I'm in Miami, and on the show this week, we have managed to get rid of both Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weisman. They're both traveling. And instead, we have two incredibly special guests. At the Slate Studios in New York, we have Jesse Isinger, a senior reporter at ProPublica, and he is on this show because, Jesse, you recently published, along with NPR, a pretty stunning investigation of the American Red Cross. Thanks for having me. Yes, I did. You did. We are going to talk about that. And also in Stanford over in California, we have Rob Reich, my favorite philanthropyologist. He's a professor of political science and is going to be talking about foundations and all manner of things. Welcome, Rob. Nice to be here. So, f- first of all, we're going to talk about um, the news. Then we're going to talk about foundations. Then we're going to talk about the Red Cross. And then we're going to have our numbers lightning round. And even that is going to have a philanthropic bent. So, as we approach the giving season, this is um, what I like to think of as a philanthropy you're doing it wrong episode like a lot of people do philanthropy right a lot of people do philanthropy wrong we're going to take a little bit of a critical look at the philanthropic universe and we're going to start with one of my favorite stories from recent weeks and in fact it just came out this week lincoln center is doing a bunch of work on Avery Fisher Hall. Now, for those of you who don't live in New York or particularly care much about classical music, Lincoln Center is a big classical music venue. It has the opera, it has the ballet, it has the New York Philharmonic. And in the campus, you have this 
big music hall called Avery Fisher Hall, which houses the New York Philharmonic and has lots of wonderful concerts. And the reason it's called Avery Fisher Hall is because about 40 years ago, a chap called Avery Fisher wrote a check for about $10 million to Lincoln Center. And they said, thank you so much. We appreciate that so much that we are going to slap your name on the outside of the building. Now, however, Avery Fisher Hall is in need of a bit of a refurbishment, a revamp. It's showing its age a bit. And so they've decided they need to raise some money to fix it up. And this is where it gets interesting. Lincoln Center has decided that the way it can most effectively raise the money to fix up Avery Fisher Hall is by selling something called a naming rights. Basically, they're going to rename Avery Fisher Hall, which is hard because they've already promised Avery Fisher that it's his name on the outside of the building. So what are they doing? You're going to love this. They are paying the family of Avery Fisher, because Avery Fisher himself has died, they are paying his heirs $15 million so that they will let Lincoln Center take Avery Fisher's name off the hall and put someone else's name on the hall. Rob, what is going on here? This is just a bizarre perversity of the philanthropic world. So, you know, one way to think about this is that the Fisher family decided philanthropically to make a gift to Lincoln Center, uh, for which they got the naming rights to Avery Fisher Hall. And that $10 million gift in the early 1970s has turned into an investment asset of a certain kind, perhaps not with an especially great return on it, because now 40-something years later... Uh, Lincoln Center has decided to pay the heirs of the Fisher family $15 million. And among the perversities of this is the fact that that initial gift was tax-subsidized. So U.S. taxpayers have helped to underwrite the commodification of philanthropy in the form of a naming right or asset. This is this is what I call transactional philanthropy. It's, a, it's the kind of tit-for-tat. If you give us a certain amount of money, then we'll give you your name on a building or a tote bag or something. Jesse, you, you work for a charitable organization. Well, actually, both of you work for charitable organizations, Stanford University and ProPublica. What, what do you think of it? What do you make of all this? Uh, you know, it's, what's amazing to me is that uh, – you know, in the United States, you can buy politicians so cheaply, but you can also buy charities so cheaply. Um, Schwartzman, Stephen Schwartzman, the noted private equity uh, mogul, bought his name on the New York Public Library for what seems to me a paltry sum of a hundred million dollars. I mean, that's that's real money in some circles, but not for Schwartzman. And you know, if they're transforming these naming rights into assets, as Rob says, uh, that makes it all the more a scandal. So the obvious thinking here on the part of the trustees of Lincoln Center is that if you're raising money to try and revamp a building, it's hard to do that. And it becomes easier to do that if you can sell the naming rights. And I think we'll call it what it is. You're selling the naming rights here. You're not just sort of thanking someone with a name. And that if you find some philanthropist who's willing to give Lincoln Center a bunch of money in order to refurbish this building, then that philanthropist is quite likely to be willing to give a lot more money if they get their name on the outside of the building. And what's more, that the difference between the amount of money that philanthropist gives 
without naming rights, and the amount of money that philanthropist gives with naming rights is going to be substantially greater than $15 million. Is, is this a reasonable assumption to make, Rob? That has to be the calculation. And, and, what, and what do you think it is? I mean, what do you think the marginal value of naming rights is? The, the value to wealthy people to uh, climb the social ladder and maintain some sort of sense of um, perpetual existence beyond their death as their name is affixed to a building. So I asked Tyler Cowen on Twitter, the great tweeting economist down at George Mason University, I asked him what he thought the marginal value of these naming rights was. And he said about $100 million. For a building of the cultural significance that Lincoln Center is, that seems to be the going rate these days. The Schwartzman gift was that much. And wasn't there also something like a $100 million gift to Central Park or the Parks Conservancy in New York? Well, that was John Paulson. I'm not sure what he, he gets in terms of naming rights for that. Another hedge fund gazillionaire. We could name it Paulson Park. <laughs> um. that, that would be interesting. So, Jesse, yeah, is this actually philanthropy then? If what you're really doing is paying extra to get your name on the building, should taxpayers be subsidizing this? Should this be considered a genuinely philanthropic act? Well, I think that you made the point when Paulson made his donation that it doesn't have much to do with philanthropy. Uh, when you are improving your own neighborhood uh, and improving your social standing um, by donating to the backyard, your backyard, Central Park, or a building near you that's going to house music that you want to hear, um, you're not doing something that's particularly philanthropic. It's really largely selfish. Um and uh, that certainly uh, – these institutions are worthy and wonderful. Uh, I don't think that they necessarily need to be um, uh, preserved through tax-subsidized donations when they could be preserved through taxes. One, well, or taxes or just through non-tax-subsidized donations. One of my um, pet theories is that we should simply – abolish the tax deductibility of charitable donations because it's a perk for rich people. Poor people don't itemize their taxes in that way. And the marginal extra amount of money that winds up going to charities as a result of this tax deductibility is actually probably smaller than the cost to the government of the tax deduction. And what's more, as you say, the kind of charities that receive these big donations from rich people are charities like Lincoln Center and Central Park, which it's not clear that there's a massive public interest in, in subsidizing these things. Right. To, to add add to that, the the tax subsidy for charitable giving costs the U.S. Treasury roughly $55, $60 billion a year. And the additional you know, oddity or perversity, if, if you thought it was a genuinely bad thing about the tax subsidy, is that uh, it is a greater subsidy the wealthier you are. The higher up the income ladder and then presumably the easier it is for you to make a donation, the larger the amount of the subsidy. And uh, that means that our tax policy differentially subsidizes um, charitable giving by giving a greater uh, uh, benefit to the wealthy rather than to the poor. And the the assumption, of course, is that uh, people wouldn't be giving or wouldn't be giving as much without the tax subsidy. But you can see that somebody like Steve Schwartzman um, wants to buy back his reputation after uh, you know 
being a private equity a rapacious private equity um uh, you know, Barron and David Koch wants to buy back his reputation. Um, and I'm sure that he delights. He he uh, has naming rights to one of the Lincoln Center theaters. And I just love the idea that people from the Upper West Side have to grit their teeth and go into a David Koch theater um, to enjoy their uh, high-end culture. But, uh, you know, these guys uh, have a lot of motive to donate that um, I'm sure they delight in saving taxes since they hate taxes so much. But uh, When you walk to the David Koch Theater, you walk through the Josie Robertson Plaza, named after the wife of Julian Robertson, the hedge fund manager. It, you can tell where this is coming from. It's And it's just like a bunch of self-aggrandizing money. And what, the other one of my favorite data points on this subject was when you had the big... Uh, memorial to FDR at the bottom of Roosevelt Island in New York, there were a couple of foundations which had been promised a certain amount of prominence of their name. And the architect said, well, actually, we can't do that because it would destroy the architecture. And the foundations took them to court and said, no, 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 you promised us that our name would be engraved in the marble at a certain height and a certain prominence. And we don't care about the architecture or the memorial. We just want our name engraved in the marble. (laughs) But at least with all of these things, you are ultimately giving money to a charitable organization. Um, Rob, you have been looking a lot more at foundations and what are these things and how charitable are they really right well well the growth of income and wealth inequality in the u.s uh has created a boom in the creation of uh, private foundations private philanthropic foundations usually in the form of family foundations the gates foundation is just the largest example of them but there are tens of thousands upwards of a hundred thousand private foundations in the u.s these days some of them with assets as small as five hundred thousand dollars but many now uh, with assets of in, in the millions and they receive significant tax subsidies for their their creation and are required every year to spend out 5%. And the transparency with which foundations operate is very, very low. Uh, the creation of foundations allows, as we've been talking about, a form of private consumption and status signaling, social climbing, the uh, endowment of one's name in various places – and the employment of one's children or relatives as well, which counts towards the 5% payout. Now, there's lots to criticize foundations for, but the research that I've been doing recently has been trying to show how certain operations of foundations, certain certain activities of foundations can actually be really good things in democracy because one virtue of foundations is that they're relatively low accountability means that they can take a very long time horizon in attempting to do things that uh, the government, for example, or the marketplace, for example, would be very unlikely to do. This is an advantage of foundations in theory, isn't it? But in have theory, you found correct. any evidence that this is actually an advantage of foundations in practice, that in aggregate this is what they do? Very little evidence about this because foundations provide relatively little evidence of the activities they undertake. They do have to disclose their grants, but it's only in recent years that anyone has been trying to examine either within a foundation or from the outside how effective grants turn out to be. And, you know, the other thing in the news uh, the past uh, week or so has been the decision of a variety of foundations to make a donation to Detroit to rescue uh, it from bankruptcy. And this is not an especially risk-taking, long-time horizon activity. It's a short-time horizon stopgap to get the city out of 
uh, uh, bankruptcy proceedings, which seems to me exactly not what foundations should be doing. So just to to clarify here, what you have is families basically having their cake and eating it, right? They, they're they giving their money away, but they're not really giving it away because they still control it. They get massive tax deductions. And what's more, with that tax-free money that they're supposedly giving away, they can use that money not only as they see fit and to glorify themselves with their names all over whatever they want, they can even use that to pay themselves salaries. Yeah, I mean, that that's the very cynical take on it all. But it, strictly speaking, what you describe is right. To be less cynical about it, one could just start from the view that philanthropy and virtually all of its forms has aspects of self-interest and consumption. And only in rare philanthropic circumstances, usually those actually recommended by religious traditions, do we find people practicing anonymous giving to anonymous others with no tax incentive to do so. Jesse, is is this just the kind of depressing truth of philanthropy is that it is all a way of making people puff themselves up and it's the, the sort of truly philanthropic impetus in society is relatively small and it would probably go away if we didn't offer people names on buildings and that kind of thing? Wow, we're getting we're getting pretty deep pretty quickly. Uh, I'm a noted <laughs> philosopher um, and student of uh, humankind, but is it Maimonides, who uh, the great rabbi who uh, had the ranking of uh, right, donations? Right, the, the, eight, the eight levels of, of charitable donation, and the, the highest was anonymous giving to anonymous others. Right, and, uh, you know, even in my own modest way, when I grudgingly give to charities, I uh, I, don't, I don't want it to be anonymous. I want to be thanked, and uh, I, want, I want to see my little name uh, in the brochure the next year. So, no, I don't think that uh, there's going to be a wave of selflessness or uh, that we can really promote charitable giving out of some goodness of the heart. But what we can do is shift our priorities so that certain things are thought of as governmental uh, obligations um, that are tax-funded and are not subject to the whims of the wealthy and the trendiness of a certain topic uh, like public education, for instance. Public education is one of the great accomplishments of civil society, of American society. And uh, some of your and my best hedge fund buddies want to change that and promote a kind of private sector, uh, in some cases for-profit, but in other cases charitable um, education that competes for funding with uh, the public sector and deprives public schools of funding. Um, and kind of undermines this civil function that I think is really central. There's certainly a lot of ideology based in these in, in charitable giving. And what's more, I think the thing which really annoys me the most about foundations, to come back to Rob's point, is that they are basically loopholes. They always invariably, I mean, every single one of them, almost without exception, gives away the absolute bare minimum of, of money needed to keep its charitable status, uh, you know, this 5% level, um, in the face of overwhelming amounts of research which show that charitable giving is best done on a front-loaded basis. If you have a certain amount of money to give away, you should give it as much as you can away right now. You shouldn't wait until tomorrow. It doesn't do you any good. 
Um, that's the thing which sort of sticks in my craw, this idea that, that you have these supposedly charitable foundations which just sit on their cash. And actually, to be fair, this is one of the things which I liked about the Detroit deal was, was that you actually had big foundations like the Ford Foundation and the Knight Foundation saying, you know what? This money is going to help Detroit right now. We can write a very large check right now, and it's going to have a positive effect right now. So let's do it. Well, uh, Jesse, um, it seems that Rob and I differ a bit about this. It was $816 million in all that various charitable foundations wound up giving to Detroit. Do you think this was a good thing or a bad thing? You know, it was quite remarkable. The um, problem is that to make good on this, they're paying off a lot of debt. Uh, you know, they're t- obviously, the debt- debtors are getting haircuts. But the foundations are essentially, they're basically making some investors more whole than they, you know, filling the hole that they uh, of the losses, right? Um, well, they're also doing things like saving the Detroit Institute of Arts and stopping it from having to sell off its artworks and that kind of stuff. Right. And, of course, that is that would have been a tragedy. Uh, and I'm glad that that was averted. You know, I think that Detroit has been unable to face up to these deep structural problems of losing um, two-thirds of your population over the last 30 years, uh, refusing to contemplate shrinking the city limits or raising properties and making parkland out of it, the kinds of things that uh, bankruptcy has concentrated the mind for them and forced them to do. Uh, You know, these foundations... I don't think it's a waste of money. I, I, I sort of lean toward thinking that um, it was a pretty innovative and um, uh, interesting thing to, for them to do. Uh, um, so I, I, I kind of lean to thinking that it was um, good, although you don't want to see them doing something that simply pays right. off other investors. But by that logic, then Stockton out here in California, which was also in bankruptcy, uh, should start uh, appealing to the very wealthy private individuals out in California to backstop its its obligations. And for all the reasons why uh, the variety of bailouts for uh, Wall Street banks uh, produced a kind of moral hazard, the, the same logic applies applies here. And again, in my mind, I don't want to say it's a it's an it's a terrible thing that this was done. It just sets into motion. It seems to me uh, a, a train which might not be able to come back to the station if foundations turn out now to be pots of money that are used to rescue communities from uh, what are really public infrastructure problems, and if they insulate uh, citizens from taking action as they they should within the the architecture of the state then if there's any rationale to create foundations in the first place, they just turn out to be quasi-public funds to backstop public obligations within the scope of our cities and communities. We really don't need foundations. We should just have uh, money around to fix bankruptcy. So, Jesse, this is is the perfect segue. Talking about public infrastructure problems, you don't get more of a public infrastructure problem than a large chunk of the eastern seaboard of the United States being wiped out by a massive storm surge, do you? And yet what happens after Hurricane Sandy, but we get $300 million worth of private donations to a private charity, the American Red Cross? Right. And, uh, you know, the American Red Cross is an interesting beast because it is 
chartered by Congress. It's written into the government's laws about who gets uh, and who has responsibility for responding to disasters. It gets a very modest amount of taxpayer dollars as well. Um, Mostly, um, the Red Cross is actually a quasi-for-profit business, effectively a for-profit business selling blood. Two-thirds of its revenue come from blood business, and then uh, a third of it is in raising money for disaster responses. What we found, Justin Elliott and I and uh, NPR found, was that the Red Cross badly botched its response to Sandy. And Sandy, of course, was a giant disaster. There was chaos uh, inherent to disasters, and Sandy was even more chaotic than normal. Um, But this went beyond the kind of normal chaotic response. What they did was they diverted assets uh, and resources for public relations purposes. They sent out 80 empty trucks during an earlier hurricane, Isaac, just to look like they were doing something. They took trucks away from uh, servicing, uh, delivering services to sit at press conferences um, that the Red Cross CEO was attending. Uh, they did a lot of things to burnish their image, um, which, of course, is uh, was uh, you know outraged people on the ground, outraged uh, volunteers and people who were trying to work with not, for not, the Red Cross. Not that it seemed to stop people from giving money to the Red Cross. Why is it, Rob? Do you think that every time there's any kind of a disaster or emergency anywhere in the United States or even abroad, that the first place that people give their money is the American Red Cross, despite the fact that we've read this story by Jesse so many times. This is not the first we've heard of the incompetence of the Red Cross. Right. Well, uh, I think the answer is pretty simple. The Red Cross, as Jesse explained, has been around a long time. It has a kind of quasi-public status because of its congressional authorization and uh, official public role in disaster response. And to put it in kind of commercial terms, the American Red Cross is the biggest brand out there. So people associate it with disaster response and relief. And if they're not going to be involved in any hands-on way as volunteers, what comes to mind when you want to do something as a small donor in the wake of a disaster? The Red Cross is what comes to mind. And, of course, all of the social media that makes it possible to make such donations, you know, Google puts it online or you make a text donation, uh, also tends to single out the American Red Cross. So people are primed for it. The other big emergency, of course, which is going on right now is the Ebola crisis in West Africa. Um, This hit home quite hard to Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook, who gave a $25 million donation, interestingly, to the CDC, which is a completely taxpayer-funded, you know, part of the government. It's not quasi-anything. It is It is a government organization, the Centers for Disease Control. Um, and then he backed up that donation by creating a campaign on Facebook saying, hey, I want all of you guys on Facebook to give to Ebola as well. And one of the three charities that he put up on Facebook as one of the proper recipients of money for people who want to help out in this Ebola crisis was the American Red Cross. So we do seem to have reached this point, Jesse. I mean, whether you like it or not, the the kind of things which ought to be done by the government and are done by the government, like funding the CDC, or in the case of Ted Turner funding the United Nations, are now being done by rich individuals. Is this just the way things are? And why is that actually a bad thing? 
I thought it was remarkable that he actually gave to the CDC, and I thought that was great. Um, the CDC has an infrastructure and is built to fund uh, research. Um, it'd be better that them than some uh, foundation that has to kind of ramp up that uh, um, infrastructure and might not have the expertise. Uh, you know, so I think that was that part of it was very good to put the Red Cross, uh, the American Red Cross, on Facebook for donating to Ebola was an interesting. Th- thing because the American Red Cross is merely part of a federation of the International Red Cross. They have to be invited into an, an international calamity or disaster. And and then they're sort of taking a vig, taking um, a little bit of overhead each time the donation goes, flows through the Red Cross to whatever local Red Cross, Liberian Red Cross or International Red Cross organization is working there. So that's not a particularly efficient way to donate. And to come back to the Sandy scandal, one of the things which always annoys me about the Red Cross is this thing they do of earmarking, that what you want in an emergency response charity like the Red Cross is the ability to respond to an emergency when it happens in the future. And then what happens when you get something like Sandy is a bunch of donations pour in. And what does the Red Cross do? It does not say, thank you for your donations. We are going to use these really effectively to respond to emergencies which happen in the future. No. Instead, it says, we promise not to do that. We pledge we will not use a single penny of your money (laughs) to respond to emergencies in the future. Instead, we're going to use it to respond to emergencies in the past. It's too late. Why do they earmark? This is a, I give some sympathy to the Red Cross for this because this is essentially, I think, a largely uh, largely driven by the public, where the public sort of demands, if I'm going to give my money for Sandy, by God, it should go to Sandy victims. Um, when... Uh, or Haitian victims or victims of the tsunami, uh, um, when in fact it would be much more efficient to spread the money over time to the disasters that don't get headlines, um, where, you know, forest fires or fires, uh, house fires. And the Red Cross sort of gets boxed in by this. They have had to respond to public scandals in the past for not allocating the money quickly enough when given for a particular disaster by saying, don't worry, we're going to get it all out the door for this particular disaster. And it doesn't make a lot of sense because um, they get too much money for the big headline disasters and not enough for the rest of them. Let me add to this. I mean, this is a general phenomenon with respect to charitable giving. One of the charity rating organizations, Charity Navigator, used to have a model which rated charitable organizations as more effective the lower overhead they had, which is to say a very effective organization which was staffed entirely by people who were volunteers, no one on salary at all, and therefore, to some extent, no overhead, would, would be thought to be highly effective, which seems nuts. It's a problem within nonprofits that operating expenses, general operating expenses, are not especially appealing uh, uh, for donors. This is true of foundations, true of average donors, and it leads to a, a distortion and an underperformance in the, in the nonprofit sector in general. One of my favorite um, examples here is... Uh, charity, which is a spin-off of Doctors Without Borders, called the Drugsford Neglected Diseases Initiative, DNDI. And its overhead ratio is 100%. 
all of its money, it's based in Switzerland, and all of its money is, goes into overhead and staff and basically coordinating between other NGOs and governments and pharmaceutical companies and various other people who can help out here to create drugs which can be used in the field to treat diseases which are highly deadly but aren't getting a lot of attention. And it's a wonderful, wonderful charity. And and it's a proof that this overhead ratio thing is, is completely ridiculous. But you're right, Rob, that there's this idea in America that you know, number one, that money should always go to that you can earmark and and that you should have low overhead ratios. And, and it's causing all of these incredible inefficiencies. What I think about this is that it, this goes back to the ego question. And there's uh, which is to say that when people give, they want to give to something that they tangible rather than some vague notion of a group that is doing something good with it. They want to say, I gave for this particular building. I gave for um, this this disaster, this action. And you see this in foundations and boards of foundations. And Rob, I'd be interested to hear what you think of this. But what we've heard at ProPublica, um, which is a nonprofit, is that foundations don't like to give to organizations for the in the long term over a long period of time. They want nonprofits to sort of get on their feet and figure out their own funding, which, of course, a lot of nonprofits are dependent on foundations for funding. They figured it out, but the foundations don't want to give them money in perpetuity. Which is hilarious because the foundations exist to give money in perpetuity. Otherwise, they'd be giving more than that 5%. Exactly. But what I think is going on here is that foundation boards are playthings for wealthy um, society folks. And they get bored if they give to the same organization year in and year out. And what they want to do is go to uh, serve on a board and then give to new things every three or four years. So I think it's just merely a function of providing entertainment for worthy people who are sitting on these boards. I think it's partly that. I would add to it, it's not merely the board members, it's the professional staff that work in foundations. Right. So if what working at a foundation consisted in was, you know, spending a good part of your life doing a lot of great things and then getting a position in a foundation where already identified were a bunch of highly effective organizations, which the foundation assets were just then funding in perpetuity, there would be nothing for the foundation staff to do except write the check. And it would it would eliminate the need, um, if you took the idea to its conclusion, for having staff that worked for foundations. The foundation would just be a, a charitable checkbook for highly effective charities. Uh, we can but wish, right? <laughs> and Jesse, just to, just to close this circle, you did actually ask the Red Cross, did you not, for an accounting of where all of the Sandy money went? Yes. Uh, so, you know, they got the $300 million and they don't break it out in any useful way. So the public cannot tell how the Red Cross really spent its money. I'll give you an example, which is that they claim that they gave out 17 million meals and snacks. Um, but when you ask for a dollar figure associated with that, they lump it in with other things like shelter stays and give you a dollar figure for that. So you can't see how many dollars they spent on the meals. They didn't. You can't see how many dollars they spent on snacks or dollars they spent on shelter stays, of course. So they say how many dollars they spent overall? How much of that $300 million was actually spent? They don't really say that. What they say is how much they spent and how much is committed, which is it's about 95% at this point. Most of it has been spent or committed. And committed 
Uh, it's unclear what that means, but largely what that means is giving some money over some period of time to a local charity, a church, a f- um, food bank, which Uh, Again, it's not a bad uh, idea. That's money that goes to victims of Sandy. But uh, it also goes, to some extent, for overhead for the Red Cross. So you're paying the Red Cross like a fund of funds um, uh, in the capital markets uh, goes and takes your money and invests in hedge funds. That's not an efficient way. Of, and, and, and the uh, head of the Red Cross is paying herself, what, half a million dollars a year? Yeah, roughly, uh, about 600000 hmm. Which on, on which note, and we're not even going to start talking about how much, you know, hospital CEOs and university football coaches get paid because that would just be far too depressing. There are lots of, you know, what you might call sports-related gifts which somehow become charitable because... Uh, yes, uh, yes. Well, the mention of the football coach, Stanford, at least as I understand it, has pioneered the idea that uh, in addition to faculty being endowed, occupying an endowed chair, uh, the Stanford football coach also now occupies an endowed chair. And that endowment is tax deductible, of course. Correct. Well, he's he's spreading learning uh, about the spread offense, and uh... to give the coach credit, the the graduation rate of Stanford athletes is very very high. <laughs> so, Rob, um, since we're since we're talking about numbers here, we're going to tie this thing up here. What what is your number that you brought to this? Yeah, well, so much of what we've been talking about is skeptical, cynical, critical of philanthropy and nonprofits, and I think there's no shortage of good reason for such uh, an attitude. So I wanted to end with a slightly more cheerful number and idea. The number is December 2nd. I've been involved with an effort called Giving Tuesday for the past couple of years. And the the simple thought is, you know, we have Thanksgiving, a day of gratitude and, and giving. We have Black Friday that follows on it, a kind of consumer orgy. Cyber Monday that follows next, and then the Tuesday after Thanksgiving is Giving Tuesday, which tries to mobilize people of uh, across the country, whether in their their business place, their nonprofit, their family, their their church, their community group, uh, to inaugurate the giving season by doing something on Giving Tuesday in the spirit of the what you know what you might think is the true nature of giving simply for the, the the good the good motive and the good outcome that it might have so giving tuesday this year is going to be in its third year hopefully larger than it ever has been before and um is driven by nothing more than the simple good sentiment that calling attention to uh, the the desirable uh, motive of charity and hopefully um, good outcomes that might come from it uh, is a worthy endeavor it is. So give money on Giving Tuesday or any day, but especially that day. Jesse, do you have a number? Yes, I do. Um, it's uh, $44.2 million, um, and that is a number. I mean, we're uh, as long as we're in the heartwarming vein, it's a number that was uh, uh, for the noted charity, the National Football League, what they paid uh, Roger Goodell last year. <laughs> Uh, the commissioner, um, as you know, uh, or maybe you don't know, the National Football League. If I wanted to, could I make a tax-deductible contribution to the National Football League? No. It's a 501c6. Ah. Okay. Ah. But it is it is tax-exempt. The uh, trade uh, association doesn't uh, pay taxes. So it's slightly off the uh, foundation topic. But uh, I've always loved that Roger Goodell is uh, worth a lot of money to the owners, but um, somehow doesn't need to pay any taxes. 
my number is, and I'm going to actually come back genuinely to the to the heartwarming theme of of Rob and Giving Tuesday. Um, my number is three thousand seven hundred. Um, this is people, and it's three thousand West Africans and seven hundred international aid workers who have been sent just by Doctors Without Borders to West Africa to fight Ebola. There's a fantastic piece about MSF in the latest issue of Business Week, which I can recommend you take a look at. They have spent well over $100 million. It's coming out to $150 million of money, which they haven't you know, been going out and raising specifically for Ebola. This is just money where they said, we need to fight this, and they've done a much better job than pretty much anyone else in fighting Ebola. I was quite disappointed to see, actually, that in the Facebook campaign that they were supporting the American Red Cross rather than Doctors Without Borders. And so therefore, since this is one of my favorite charities, I am going to take Rob's challenge and I'm going to not only going to give a bunch of money to Doctors Without Borders on December the 2nd, but if you, dear listeners, send me an email, the address as ever is slatemoney at slate.com, telling me how much money you have donated to Doctors Without Borders. Um, and don't earmark it, of course. This is just let them do what they do best, which is responding to emergencies wherever they might be in the world. Um, I will match this as best I can. I will let you guys know how much money this is going to add up to by December the 2nd. And I will try and match all of it and um, give it all on Giving Tuesday. I believe we should all try and push ourselves like this. So... That's it for us. So you're this not week. giving this uh, anonymously, huh? Felix? Uh, I am. I am trying <laughs> to do this this matching thing. I, I don't know whether it works. Actually, Rob, you can tell us. Like this, yep. this whole idea of like if you give money, then someone else will match it, and it will be double. Does that actually work in terms of encouraging people to give? There's some mixed evidence. It's sadly the evidence is strongest when the people who do the matching pledge that the matching will go to the overhead, whereas it, they promise to everyone else who donates that 100% of their gift gets out the door to services and clients. So in that case, I promise that my money to Dogs Without Borders will be earmarked only for staff salaries in the headquarters in Geneva in New York. And all of your money will go to the field. I'm sure, I'm sure that their overhead ratio is less than 50%. So we can, I can do that. So come join the happy giving throng. Give money to Doctors Without Borders or anyone else. Um, and also, while you're at it, subscribe to Slate Money on the, in the iTunes store. You can do many, many good things um, in the coming weeks. Write to us with your donations and your everything else, your comments and complaints and questions. As I say, the email address is slatemoney at slate.com. And thank you in advance. Uh, the producer for Slate Money this week was Dan Alcorn. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. And for Jesse Isinger and Rob Reich, I'm Felix Salmon. We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.